You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of the cycle of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled Rethinking Economics, Lectures and Seminars on World Economics. This is Lecture 12, entitled Money, given on Dornach on August 4, 1922. Yesterday we formulated a very important question, which came to the fore with the transition from national economy to world economy. With this transition, the question of price begins to acquire a very different significance in the economic life from what it had before. But there are other things to consider before we can gain a concept of the factors that really determine price. For the price, the public price, so to speak, that eventually emerges in the market or in the circulation of goods, is really of far less economic importance than what lies behind the forming of prices and of which price formation and price fluctuation are merely the final results. Now these factors that precede the forming of price, both on the buying and on the selling side, are connected with the social relationships in the middle of which the buyer and seller stand. It is these relationships that determine whether the buyer will attach a greater or lesser value to a certain sum of money. I mean value not only in the subjective sense. Economically speaking, the subjective is important only to the extent that it is properly grounded in the objective, that is, to the extent that it rests on a true judgment of objective processes. The value of money is very important even in an objective sense. The economic question these days cannot be isolated from the social question. One can reach a valid judgment only by observing the interplay of the two. Thus we must recognize that the social discontent underlying the present social disturbances is connected above all with what precedes the forming of prices and of which the forming of prices is merely the final result. As I have shown already, even in the payment of wages, that is, in that price formation that under the existing economic system ultimately finds expression in the rate of wages, we really have an instance of purchase and sale. Everything that leads to wage disputes really depends on social relationships in which both the worker and the entrepreneur are involved, relationships of which the result is the kind of price formation that constitutes the payment of wages. Accordingly, the first thing to investigate is how the money itself influences setting a price. Money itself plays the chief part nowadays both in ordinary purchase and sale, in the payment of wages, and in all the rest of economic life as well. We must distinguish between what eventually emerges as price in terms of money and what constitutes the essential value of the money 
in the hand in the hand of one person or another, in the hand of the seller or of the buyer. Today, therefore, we must pause for a moment to consider money as such. In contemporary treatises on economics, you will find various elegant statements on the nature of money. For instance, you will find a list of the qualities that money must have in order to permit its use as money. Let us consider critically some of the qualities that are thus enumerated, for this will show you how necessary it is to get away from many of these current ideas of economics into a rather different way of thinking. For instance, it is said that, in the first place, money must have a universally recognized value, but the question is who the recognizer will be. When you have said that money must have universally recognized value, you have said nothing. You have simply asserted that it ought to have a certain property, but you have not said how it is to get it. The second property enumerated is still more remarkable. It is said, for instance, that money must be small in volume, and yet being rare, in spite of its small volume, it must be possible for it to have a high value. For this, property makes money especially easy to store up, and if only for this reason will constitute a fairly strong inducement to the amassing of wealth. If gold sovereigns were as big as tables, it would be be far more difficult to hoard them. Lycurgus saw this long ago and introduced a rather more bulky currency as a preventive against excessive enrichment. If gold sovereigns were as big as tables, it would indeed be less comfortable to get rich than it is now people would notice it more. The reason, therefore, appears to be a rather superficial one. The next thing, they say, is that money must be divisible at will. I have found this statement, too, in one of the textbooks on national economy. But this, again, can be brought about only by some kind, excuse me, some act of recognition. Something must first be done to make it so. It is, therefore, once more a rather empty statement. Then they say that money must be easy to preserve. Well, this property of being easy to preserve will be brought home to us in its full significance in the course of today's lecture. You see, we must be clear not only on this, that nature as such receives an economic value only when it enters into the general economic circulation, when it is taken up by labor. And again, that labor receives an economic value only through the way it is organized or divided. And finally, that capital receives a value only through the fact that it is taken over by the human spirit and thus worked into the economic process. We must also be clear that money as such receives its value by the free process of circulation. Now, we must consider the changes that money undergoes in the course of circulation. The premises are given to us by what we have said already in these lectures. Speaking of money, the first thing we have to deal with is ordinary purchase money, the money we use to buy anything that serves us for consumption. But we must also consider what we may call loan money. This we have seen in a former lecture. Bearing in mind its connection with the whole economic process is loan money quite the same as purchase money. If you are considering purchase money, you will have to ask how purchase money comes into existence, 
among all the other elements of buying and selling. It comes about because those who make use of money in giving their money have given something that not only effects an immediate exchange, but have given something that also mediates an exchange. They give something that inserts itself into the exchange. As I have shown already in these lectures, everything that enters as a mediator into the process of exchange is money. Suppose I am not content with acquiring as many peas as I can eat myself. Suppose I acquire peas with the object of using them, trading them, in order to obtain some other things that I require. In that case, simply through this mediating function, I am already transforming what would otherwise be an article of consumption into money. Spengler makes a very shrewd observation on this point. Spengler develops his ideas along a general line of thought that is unfruitful, but he often makes very sound observations. He says that at a certain period of Roman history, human beings, economically speaking, became money. The slaves became money. So long as I used the slaves for myself, that is to say, if as an ancient Roman I acquired only as many slaves as I could use in my own household, the slave was, of course, a means of production. But it is different the moment a slave is hired out or lent. At a certain period of the Roman Empire, this lending and hiring was the case. People had so many slaves that they were able to lend them out. They could apply slaves to all manner of profitable purposes by trading them. When this took place, the slaves became money. And for that time, we may say human beings became money. This is a perfectly correct observation of Spengler's from which you can see once more how what acts as purchase money gradually emerges out of what is at first only an article of exchange. It follows from this that whatever we use as money to be a really useful form of money must not merely oscillate like peas between the function of being consumed and the function of being passed from hand to hand. This change would involve constant fluctuations of value in the process of circulation. We want something that is used for no other purpose than for mediating an exchange, and to this end there must be a certain, albeit only a tacit, agreement among those who use the money. This, then, is an essential point. The money must be used only for an exchange, as a medium. It must not be used for consumption. Loan money, however, is something essentially different from this purchase money. In the case of purchase money, you have no other foundation on which to estimate its value. No, you have no other need to estimate its value than how much you will get for it. Time makes no essential difference. Whether you buy a pound of meat today or after a certain lapse of time, you must estimate the pound of meat according to its consumption value. Your money may, in the meanwhile, have acquired a different value in relation to the pound of meat. But for the human being who eats it, the value of the pound of meat cannot, properly speaking, change in course of time. The duration factor, however, is essential. The given pound of meat can only be eaten during a certain period of time. That is to say, it can have a value only for a certain period of time, since it will go bad. 
This is a very pertinent economic fact. Everything that is a genuine object of use or consumption is subject to decay. When for the purposes of pure exchange we use money as an equivalent, we must admit that as opposed to articles that decay, money is an unfair competitor. In normal circumstances nowadays, money does not seem to decay. I say expressly it does not seem to decay. Here you can see what an unhealthy element is introduced into the economic life when we bring into it relationships that are different from those in reality. By our established institutions, money has a fixed numerical value under all conditions. No matter how it may otherwise be placed in relation to the social life, money has its face value and is supposed to keep it permanently. But in reality it does not do so. Everything else is honest. Meat, after a period which varies with its quality, begins to smell. Money does not do this, no matter what its quality may be. Money does not openly smell, in quotes. Yet when we see circumstances bring it about that an article grows less or more expensive after a certain time, we are obliged to admit the following. While the article itself, by virtue of its qualities for human life, must retain the same value, for general conditions will ensure its being consumed at the right moment and its replacement with a new one, the same thing is not true for money, excuse me, of money. Consequently, money, as such, as a pure medium of exchange, is an unfair competitor because it does not reveal in any way the fact that it is also really subject to changes. If I have to pay a certain sum of money for a pound of meat today and a different sum of money for a pound of the same meat two weeks later, the difference, the increase, for example, in the money I must pay, cannot be because of the pound of meat. It must therefore be because of the money. If the money still bears the same face value, then the money is beginning to tell a lie, for its real value has decreased. If I must give more in exchange for a pound of meat than the value of the money has decreased. That is quite obvious. In this way, by the act of circulating the money, I bring into the process something that is not really there economically. Economically, the facts are otherwise. Economically, the situation is that money itself, simply through the economic process, undergoes changes. We must now investigate the occasions upon which money undergoes changes. In addition to exchange money or purchase money, we have loan money. Take, for instance, the loan money that a man obtains in order to begin some enterprise. For him it is not purchase money. For him it becomes working capital. Now you must see that this working capital, this loan money, has an essentially different value, an essentially different property. Loan money is fundamentally different from purchase money. Except for the fact that it still consists of gold, silver, and paper, not many of its original properties are left when purchase money is transferred to the sphere of loan money. It acquires its value in quite a different way. The moment loan money comes into circulation, the human spirit seizes it. 
Human thinking sets to work. And it is through this entry of human thinking into the process that loan money receives its actual value. When a banknote is lent to a man who is about to undertake some business, at the moment he begins to use it, it would be far more important to write on the note whether the man is a genius or a fool in business. For the value of the loaned money in the whole economic process will, henceforth, depend upon the way he acts with it. We must pass from loan money to the third kind of money that I mentioned a few days ago. These days, as a general rule, it is not taken into account, and yet it plays the greatest imaginable part in the economic process. In fact, we must now pass from loaned money to gift money. Gift money, fundamentally speaking, is all that is spent on education. This plays an enormous part in the economic life. Gift money, again, is all that is spent on endowments and the like, all that has the effect of preventing the evil damming up of capital in the land by capital investment, which is so ruinous for the economic life. Can I read that again? This plays an enormous part in the economic life. Gift money, again, is all that is spent on endowments and the like, all that has the effect of preventing the evil damming up of capital in the land by capital investment, which is so ruinous for the economic life. At this point we must say that for the person whose livelihood depends on purchase money, gift money simply becomes valueless. It loses its value. Gift money is the opposite of purchase money. As we can see from the simple fact, that only one who has received the gift can purchase with it. One who has not received the gift cannot purchase with this particular money. We have, therefore, three kinds of money, qualitatively different from one another. Purchase money, loan money, and gift money. To comprehend the relation between these three, we must consider economic systems such as, for instance, the private economies that we assumed hypothetically in the last lecture, economies representing a kind of closed domain. There we shall find that, after a certain time, all that is loan money passes over into gift money. Nor can it be any different in the case of that closed economic domain that is world economy. Loaned money must gradually pass over entirely into gift money. Loan money must not be allowed to be dammed up into purchase money so as to disturb the latter. Loan money therefore passes over into gift money. So it must be in a self-contained economic system. And what does it do in the domain where gift money is working? It loses its value. We may say of the domain of purchase money that the money will here represent a certain value. In the domain of, in quotes, gift, on the other hand, the money has, with respect to all that obtains in the domain of purchase, a negative value. It lets the purchase value vanish into nothing. Finally, between the two, the transition is brought about through loan money, The loan money itself gradually vanishes into gift money. Perhaps you will say that this is hard to follow. It is. 
I am sorry that we cannot go on for months detailing instances where we can see that the facts are as I have stated with regard to the valuation and devaluation of money. This, however, should really be our task. All that can be said in the present lecture should be taken as a basis for further research in economics. In the brief period of two weeks, only hints and suggestions can be given. But you will find that all the economic statements that have been made here will be transformed by detailed investigation into valuable economic truths, valuable both in science and in practice. It does actually take place in the economic process that money undergoes metamorphoses. It acquires different qualities as it becomes loan money or gift money. But we mask this fact if we simply let money be money and use the number inscribed on it as the unit of measurement and so forth. We mask it and the reality takes its revenge, a revenge that reveals itself in fluctuations of price with which, though they are actual enough in the economic process, our reasoning faculty cannot keep pace. We ought to be able to follow them. We ought not to let money merely flow into circulation and give it freedom to do what it likes, for we thereby do something very peculiar in the economic life. If we require animals for some kind of labor, the first thing we do is to tame them. Think how long it takes to train a riding horse. Think what would happen if we did not tame our animals but use them wild, taking no pains to train them. But we let money circulate quite wildly in the economic process. If and when it chooses to do so, so to speak, we let it acquire the value it has as loan money or as gift money. And we do not foresee that when an industrialist has money from whatever source, which has been wrongly transformed from loan money into gift money and he pays his workers with it, the result is quite different from what it would have been if he had paid them, say, out of pure purchase money. In effect, the more a man is obliged to pay his workers with pure purchase money, the less he will be able to give them, that is to say, the cheaper they will have to deliver their products. On the other hand, the more he is able to pay them with money that has already been transformed, that is, that has already passed into the sphere of loan or gift, the higher the wages that he will be able to give them. That is to say, more can be charged for their products in the market. The point is to grasp the matter with our reason. You see, as things are today, the function of money has constantly had to be corrected. Take the case, for example, of a national economy bordering on other national economies. By letting money function in this wild, unguided way, without bringing any intelligence into the process, a national economy may easily find itself in a disastrous position with regard to the price of some piece of goods or something else that is required. So long as the national economy is one among others and no repressive measures are adopted, people will simply import the article in question. Their imports will be increased. Things are constantly being corrected in this way. 
For world economy, on the other hand, no such correction is possible. We cannot import things from the moon. If we could import from or export to the moon and Venus and the rest, world economy would also be like a mere national economy. This is precisely the great question. What becomes of our science of economics through the fact that the world is now a single, closed economic domain? And now let us suppose that we really make up our minds to allow money to grow old. Suppose you have a certain piece of money, no matter what substance it is made of or what date it is inscribed on it. Say it is 1910. And now you take another piece of money with the date 1915. The money marked 1915 begins to exist as money economically in that year. And now suppose that by some reasoned treatment, it undergoes the process that is undergone by all other exchangeable products. It loses its value after a certain time. The precise figures I mention are not important. They are merely illustrations. The actual figures required would have to be the subject of infinitely numerous but perfectly possible calculations, as we shall presently see. Suppose, therefore, for the sake of example, that the piece of money would have lost its value for economic activity by the year 1940. It would have a definite value only between 1915 and 1940. For that period it would have, as we shall see directly, a determinable value. If money loses its value in the economic process after 25 years, a piece of money bearing the date 1910 will have lost its value in the year 1935. Thus I would assign a particular property to the money that I carry around with me. I would assign it, I was assigned to it a kind of age. This 1910 money is older. It will die earlier than the 1915 money. Now you may say that this is just a scheme. No, what I've just explained to you is the actual reality. That is how the economic process actually wills it. The economic process of its own accord makes the money grow old. The fact that it does not appear to grow old, the fact that we will still buy things with 1910 money in the year 1940 is only a mask. In doing so, we do not really buy with this money. We buy with a fictitious money value. If therefore the money in my purse grows old in this way, if its date of origin has a real meaning, and by growing old I mean getting nearer and nearer to its death, then money, like a human being and every other living thing, has a certain value impressed upon it by the fact that it is growing older. The money comes to life and a value is impressed upon it. Why? Suppose you have young money, money of the present year, 1922 money. This 1922 money will be good purchase money, needless to say. But now suppose that I am an entrepreneur and I ask myself how I can supply myself with money for my undertaking. Suppose, according to my calculations, my undertaking must be planned for a period of twenty years. Shall I provide myself with old money or with young money? Then I will think that if I take old money it will have lost its value in five years or in two. Therefore it will not do for me to use old money. If, according to my calculations, I must provide for a long period, I must have young money. 
Thus, under the influence of long-term undertakings, young money receives its particular economic value, a value far greater than that of old money. This economic value really exists, and it is there now. On the other hand, suppose I have to embark on an undertaking that involves calculations covering a period of only three years. In that case, I should be a poor economist if I used very young money. The young money, by virtue of its youth, is the most valuable and accordingly the most expensive. If I require the money for a shorter period, I shall provide myself with less valuable money. For those who have to apply their spirit, their intelligence to money, the age of the money can begin to play a part, of which they are quite conscious. Please note that this is not something that does not exist already. It exists, but in a wild, untamed way, which results in mutual disturbance and unhealthy economic conditions. On the other hand, if you tame money, if you really assign it to it at a certain age, letting young money, as loan money, be more valuable than old, then you will be impressing the money with its real effective value, the value it possesses through its position in the economic process. This value really inheres in the money only while it is loan money. For even if money is loan money, as purchase money it still retains its former value. You do not need to consider too carefully whether you ought to provide yourself with still other money for what you as entrepreneur are going to consume. These things will correct themselves of their own accord. Remember that free gifts also play a part in the process, in which they have a very real significance, those gifts of which I have already spoken in various connections. All that we put into the educational system is a gift, notably when it is a question of a truly free spiritual cultural life. This too is happening already, though people fail to notice it. When you give directly, your intelligence is in the process. As things are now, you do give, but the gift is absorbed into the general pool of taxation. It vanishes into a vague economic fog, and you do not observe what happens. So the situation runs wild. In the other case, conscious intelligence comes into it. Consider for a moment what kind of money you will use where it is a question of free gifts. If you are thinking in a true economic sense, then where it is a question of free gifts you will use old money, money that loses its value as soon as possible after the gift is made, provided that the person who takes the benefit of the gift has just enough time to make purchases with it. At this point, needless to say, there must be some rejuvenating process in the economic process. Money, in fact, must have a successor. The important thing is, as you will readily perceive, that things must not be allowed to happen arbitrarily through the general chaos that the economic state spreads everywhere. The economic state brings about a hopeless confusion of values by failing to distinguish purchase money, loan money, and gift money, though in reality these three are separated all the time. You will readily see that if you do not wish to leave the process to chance, if you wish to bring reason 
into it. You simply must interpose the necessary associative bodies at the transition points between purchase money, loan money, gift money, and the renewal of money. Take the case of those who have money to lend. You would not let them lend it in a senseless way. You would bring them into connection with their association. The association would act as a mediator. The association would provide them with the most sensible way in which to lend, or again with the most sensible way in which to give. When a gift takes place and every individual is free to give or not to give, the money, if it has a year value as explained above, will not undergo the same process. But the important thing is to bring about sensibly and in accordance with reason the things that happen in any case in the economic process, but behind a mask. The money, when it has served its purpose, must be collected. And then once more, at the beginning of the process of purchase and sale, it must receive its original value. That is to say, it receives its new year number and passes into the hands of those who are dealing once more with nature products, products of nature that are just beginning to pass into the sphere of labor. For here it is pure purchase and sale that are going on. This is the associative method of managing things. The three kinds of money must be treated in different ways. In the first place, gift money, which is the oldest, must be handed over to an association that will bring the valueless money back again into the whole economic process, by uniting it with labor at the point where the nature process begins. There can be no economic difficulty in this. What, then, will be the essential difference from the existing practice? It will be that in a self-contained economic system, which, as we saw, is not like a national economy bordering on others, where exports and imports can be carried on, three distinct domains arise, as far as money is concerned, the domain of purchase money, the domain of loan money, and the domain of gift money. When anything occurs that would otherwise have had to be corrected by export and import from another country, it will be corrected by the three domains. If purchase money sets up a disturbance, there will be a corresponding flow between the spheres of purchase money, loan money, or gift money. These things will adjust themselves of their own accord. Irregularities will undoubtedly arise, and having arisen they must correct themselves. Life cannot go on without irregularities coming in. It is an irregularity when the stomach is full. Accordingly, digestion has to follow. In the same way, circumstances must continually arise under which for certain commodities purchase money is too cheap or expensive, and then the cheap money will flow into the other domain, so that on the other side it becomes more expensive again as purchase money. What would otherwise have been corrected by export and import will now correct itself within the self-contained economy. All that is required is actual human reason. This will be brought into the process through the associations, which will be there observing things with their collective experience and taking the proper corresponding measures. It is necessary, above all, to understand the essential nature of money. People fail to understand it, 
precisely because it is always there, before them, without their being able to see what it really is. In the social organism there is no such thing as, quote, money as such, close quote. There are only these three kinds of money. Moreover, each kind of money becomes what it is only at the moment when it is actually entering into the economic process or passing over from one form of economic process to another. In the very process, it is constantly being changed. The point is that we must learn to know money properly before we can pronounce what part it plays when it becomes an expression of the price of something else. To penetrate the economic process clearly, we must not remain at the surface, merely observing how things appear on the surface. Seen on the surface, a ten-franc piece is, of course, a ten-franc piece today, no matter whether 1910 or 1915 or 1920 is inscribed on it. Outwardly considered, it is always the same ten francs, and, of course, in ordinary sale and purchase it behaves accordingly. I do not observe that a difference has taken place until I have less of it, or things have become more expensive. But in this very having less, or becoming more expensive, there lies inherently what I expounded to you today as the greater or lesser age of the money. To perceive the economic process clearly, we cannot merely speak of cheap or expensive money, of cheap or expensive commodities. We must find out what money is in its real essence. This must first be recognized and known. For it is with money that we master the economic process nowadays. We shall show tomorrow how substitutes for money have to be treated in a similar way. This is the important thing. We must not shy away from penetrating beneath the surface, into the depths, to see the real underlying facts. In economics, we must not speak of cheap or expensive money in relation to commodities. We must realize that in the living economic process, we must speak of money as being old and young. The end of Lecture 12